Well, have you ever experienced the, the doubt, maybe, the, the, the questioning of a promise because you're not too sure that whoever's making the promise can really deliver on what they're saying? Like, like your promise that you're gonna have a certain download speed on your internet, right? And uh, how often do you ever get that, right? You, you pay for 100, 200 meg or whatever, and you get like two, right? And you can barely stream uh, your, your TV show, okay? We're, we're not too sure that they can deliver on what they've promised. What about politicians, right? I mean, I think a lot of us have gotten used to hearing promises from politicians, and we're just not too sure uh, that they're going to deliver on what they're promising. What about this promise? We hear it every year around this season. Texas is back. Texas is back, right? Um, they kind of looked like it yesterday. I'm not going to lie, all right? <laughs> they did kind of look like it, but I'm not buying it. I'm not believing it, okay? I'm not believing that Texas is back. Too, too much history there has made me think, has made me question that, that Texas is going to be back. The, the Cowboys are going to win a playoff game, Right? I'm not so sure, okay? I, I mean, Dak is back, things are looking good, maybe playoff game, uh, but, but we're told every year, this is the year we're gonna win that Super Bowl for the first time in like 30 years, you know? Uh, so, so we're promised something, but we're just not too sure. Their performance has made us doubt the promise, right? What about buying takeout or getting drive-through and your order supposed to come with ranch, like any good West Texan, you ordered ranch, right? With, with your food. And um, it's like queso around here. We, we love us some ranch, right? And you don't get your ranch. I don't know about you, but I'm totally miserable. I don't even want the food. I'm just so disappointed that I didn't get my ranch with my order. I, I've just lost my appetite. I'm so disappointed because I wanted my ranch. Nixon, my daughter promised me that she would stay six years old. She's eight. That's promise not kept, Nixon. You know, I just, I don't know what to tell you. I, I, she told me she would stay six and now she's eight. So I'm not sure I can trust her. I'm not sure I can trust her anymore, right? You get uh, your spouse, your kids tell you, we, if we get this pet, we promise we're gonna take care of it, all right? You won't even have to worry about it, right? We promise if we get this pet, we will take care. I've been bamboozled by that promise myself, all right? Uh, that, that is not what happen. Okay. So, so we've all had promises that we're not too sure because of our experience ha have shaken our faith in those promises. Well, what about, what about some spiritual promises? If you've been around church, if you've read your Bible, then, then you know that Romans eight, Paul wrote that all things, God is working all things together for the good of those who love him are called according to his purpose. But I don't know about you, you, you start to experience some life, you get kind of punched in the mouth, punched in the gut a few times by life. And, and all of a sudden, you're just not so sure about that anymore. Like I'm not so, I, I don't know what to think about that. Like God's working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his part. Like, really? Is that really what's going on here? Because that's not what feels like what's going on here. What about Joseph saying after everything that had happened to him, brothers selling him into slavery, spending time in prison, wrongfully accused, wrongfully imprisoned, suffering. And at the, at the end of all of, of his story, he says what the devil meant for evil, God used for good. I, I, I don't know about you, but 
Sometimes I'm wondering, God, where, where's the good that you're, you're bringing about here? The, the devil meant for this for evil. This was awful. This, this was terrible. We, we've suffered in this way. So, so God, where, where is that good that you've promised is just right around the corner? Where, where is this good, Joseph, that you're speaking of? What, what, about, what about this promise? Jesus said that he came so that we might have life and have it to the full. I mean, when suffering is overwhelming you, when someone dies, when you get that lifelong disease or disability, what, what then? What, what about when you're suffering with depression or anxiety and it's overwhelming you? What about when, you're, when your sin or when that addiction is just owning you and, you and you can't get past it and you can't, you're not getting free from it? Life to the full, Jesus, really? You're working all things together for the good of those who love you. What about when you're betrayed? God, how are you going to use this for good? This is awful. This really hurts. What do you do when the uncertainty of life challenges your certainty in God, in the gospel. Last week we looked at it in verses one through four in Luke chapter one, that the certainty of the gospel, the, the certainty of the resurrection. And it's interesting now as we continue our study in Luke, we're picking up in verse five today, that we get some stories here that, that, that challenge, that, that our life circumstances challenge that certainty in God, that challenge our, our, our faith in God. So, so turn with me to Luke chapter one. What do we do when the uncertainty of life challenges your certainty, your faith in God? We're gonna look at two stories today. One about an old man and an old woman, an old couple. And another about a very young woman, a very young couple. And their different life experiences that would challenge their faith in God. What do we do when the promises of God seem absurd because of the suffering, because of the anxiety, because of the depression, because of the loss? What do we do when the promises of God seem absurd? Follow along with me here in Luke chapter one. We're gonna look at verse five through 38 this morning. You can follow along in our app, the City Church Lubbock. If you don't have that, I invite you to download that now. Click sermon notes, and then you can follow along. The verses and the points are all there for you. Uh, the verses will also be on the TV right here next to me, uh, or you can follow along in your Bible. But we're gonna be in five through 38, we got a lot to cover. I went over in the last service. I know some of you are like big surprise. Okay, so, so uh, we, got, we got to get going here, all right? Verse five through 38, let me set this up for you. There has been 400 years of perceived silence from God, perceived like on the behalf of the nation of Israel. We haven't seen these miraculous events and these miraculous words from the Lord, from the prophets, like we see at the close of the Old Testament, at the end of the days of the prophets. It's been about 400 years of perceived silence. We know Jesus said his father's always working, so God's always at work, but there's perceived silence on behalf of Israel, that they feel like maybe the Lord's abandoned them. Maybe the Lord has forgotten his promises that he's made with them. Maybe the Lord has forgotten all the covenants that he made with our people, with our father, with, with back to Eve, but then with father Abraham and, and with David. What about all these promises, God, that you, you made to us? Have you forgotten? Have you forgotten us? You, you see, 
you can imagine after 400 years of feeling like your ancestors haven't heard from God and haven't seen God come through for them and rescue them in the ways that he said he would, that you would begin to doubt. But the uncertainty of life would begin to challenge the certain faith that you have in God. Verse five, when Herod was king of Judea, that these are, these are dark days. Herod is one bad dude, okay? He kills everyone around him that rivals his throne, that challenges his power. He just kills them, including his own family members. He just kills them. These are dark days for the nation of Israel. If Disney were writing this, it would start out like once upon a time, there was a wicked king. This, these are dark days for the nation of Israel. Herod is a bad dude. When Herod was king of Judea, there was a Jewish priest named Zechariah. He was a member of the priestly order of Abijah and his wife, Elizabeth, was also from the priestly line of Aaron. So Elizabeth and Zechariah are from the priestly line of Aaron. So Zechariah, you're gonna see in just a second, is serving a stint, a two-week stint in the temple as a priest. Now here's what's interesting. We've got to stop before we go on, okay? Zechariah, his name means God remembers. Elizabeth's name means God's covenant. Put those two together. 400 years of silence. 400 years of, of doubt, of questioning. And the first two people we read out in the gospel of Luke is Zechariah, Elizabeth. God remembers his covenant. So Luke is setting up, he's indicating, he's revealing that the coming events that we're about to read about are connected to Israel's past and most importantly to the purposes and story of God. That everything that we're, we're about to read is really, ultimately, this is about God. This is about his story. This is about his glory. This is about a, a rescue mission that God is beginning to put in place. It's all, it's all about him. Verse six, Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous in God's eyes, careful to obey all the Lord's commandments and regulations. They had no children because Elizabeth was unable to conceive and they were both very old. Here's what you gotta understand about Zechariah's day. The priests in his day have pretty much abandoned and traded their spiritual zeal and their commitment to God's word for nationalistic political zeal and ambition. Sound familiar to anybody? Trading spiritual zeal, spiritual passion for nationalistic ambition, power, for political zeal and passion? Sounds pretty familiar to me. The priests in Zechariah's day had abandoned their post as the watchdogs of the word of God. And whatever didn't fit into their narrative of desiring power, of their ambition for position and power, whatever didn't fit in, they rejected, and you're gonna see, it's gonna cost them dearly. All throughout the Gospel of Luke, even today, you're gonna to see it. They totally miss Jesus because of it. Because they are so concerned, because they are so passionate about politics, and because they are so passionate about national, their nationalistic zeal, they totally miss out on what God is doing. That should be a warning to us. 
It should be a warning to a church who has totally lost its mind, its spiritual zeal, its spiritual passion, and have traded that in for nationalistic zeal and for an over-concern with politics. This would cost the priests of Zechariah's day greatly. They would totally miss the heart of God. They would totally miss out on their Messiah because of it. But Zechariah and Elizabeth are different. They're different. Look in verse six. They're righteous in the eyes of God and they are careful to obey all the Lord's commandments and regulations. They are careful to remain true to God's word and to their roles in the priesthood. Verse six says they are righteous in the eyes of God. Here's the first thing I want you to know about that phrase right there is that there is a way to be righteous in the eyes of God because God has a way of people being righteous in his eyes and there is no other way. Uh, Paul said it like this in Romans chapter 10, that, that Israel got it wrong that they thought they could be righteous in the eyes of God by keeping all the commands and keeping the law. And, and so establishing, Paul said, their own righteousness before God, and Paul said they got it all wrong. You, you cannot establish your own righteous standing before God, that's impossible. Paul said they, they thought the nation of Israel began to think and begin to believe that they could establish a righteous standing before God by being a good person through works. But Paul said that was not God's way. God's way, Paul said, of making people righteous, of making people right in his sight, is by faith, not by works. Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9 says it like this, salvation is not a reward for the good things that we've done. Good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people do. And you're forgiven of your sin when you give your life to Jesus. When you give your life to Jesus, the scripture says, he who knew no sin, Jesus, became sin. He took on your sin on the cross so that those who place their faith in Jesus would become the righteousness of God. You, you don't earn righteousness before God. You're given righteousness by God through faith in Jesus. And so the scripture says, when you give your life to Jesus at that moment, your sin is forgiven and you're made right with God. You're righteous in the eyes of God. You receive the righteousness of Christ. And so when God looks at you, the scripture says you're hidden in Christ and Christ is in you. He sees the righteousness of Christ, not your sin. But you could never earn or establish a righteousness before God. That's impossible. Paul said, that's not God's way. God has a way because it's his heaven. He has a way to get to heaven and he has a way of making people right with himself. My way does not matter. My opinions don't matter. It's his heaven. And he's made a way for us to have a relationship with him and to go to heaven when we die. He's made a way for us to have a righteous standing before him and it's by faith in Jesus and it's not by works. So, so, so Luke says they're righteous in the eyes of God, which means that Zachariah and Elizabeth by faith have trusted in God and received a righteous standing before God. They didn't earn it. They didn't, they don't deserve it. They haven't done enough good things. Their good deeds aren't, aren't, aren't outweighing their bad deeds. And so now they've got a righteous standing before God. No, they received a righteous standing before God. They were given righteousness by their faith. And so Luke says they're, they're righteous. They're, they're, they're faithful in the eyes of God. Secondly, what Luke is revealing here is God's attitude 
towards them, the way that he thinks about Zechariah and Elizabeth, that they are faithful and they are righteous. They are careful, it says, to obey all the commandments of the Lord's and his regulations. So here Luke is kind of giving us insight into the way that God views Zechariah and Elizabeth. And this is important because of verse seven. God views them as righteous and faithful, yet verse seven, They had no children because Elizabeth was unable to conceive. They were both very old. They had no children. Elizabeth was barren. And at this point in their lives, they are very old. They are very advanced in years. Like Abraham and Sarah, they are as good as dead. That's how old they are, right? They're they're like in their 90s. They're like 100. And the scripture says Abraham and Sarah, they they were as good as dead. Okay, they were at the very end, all right? And, and, and that's where Zechariah and Elizabeth are. They're, they're like Abraham and Sarah, as good as dead, advanced in years. And they've never had any kids. And to a Jew, here's what you've got to understand, to a Jew, they viewed not having kids, the inability to have kids, they viewed that as a curse from God, as a punishment for their sin. That's how they viewed it. They, They viewed this suffering as not being blessed, as God not blessing them, as God allowing them to suffer because of wrongdoing on their part. Yet here, at this moment, so far at least, what Luke is telling us about the way God views Elizabeth and Zechariah is that they are righteous and they are fully and completely faithful to God and to the word of the Lord. Yet, they have no kids when they would have spent their entire life pleading for kids. Having viewed it as a curse, they would have spent their entire lives praying and crying out to God for kids and feeling like the Lord was not hearing their prayer and had not blessed them because of some wrongdoing on their part. Yet, watch this, they continually and faithfully serve God. Their their circumstances, you gotta catch this, their circumstances, their suffering have not affected their devotion or faithfulness to God. They've continued to serve God and remain faithful to him in spite of their suffering, in spite of their lack, in spite of their great loss. In spite of even feeling like God was probably displeased with them, they didn't run from God. They continued to run to God and to plead with him and to serve him. Verse eight, one day, Zechariah was serving God in the temple for his order was on duty that week. They, there was many different priests of God and, and they, would, they split up the time. And, and so Zechariah is kind of on duty right now, right? He, he's on the clock. He's got his two week stint in the temple serving God as a priest. Verse nine, As was the custom of the priest, he was chosen by lot to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and burn incense. While the incense was being burned, a great crowd stood outside praying. So Zachariah is in the priestly line of Aaron, which makes him a priest. He's he's a part of the Levitical priesthood. And so he would serve as a priest for this two-week stint in the temple. And as a priest, because he's not the high priest, so he doesn't get to go into the Holy of Holies, right? But he is a priest, so he gets to go right up to the Holy of Holies. There's a curtain that separates uh, the the holy place from the most holy place, the Holy of Holies. He doesn't get to go in there. That's for the high priest. But Zechariah, watch this, is 
is a priest and is holy enough and cleansed enough where he gets to go right to the outside of where the presence of God and the throne of God was in the temple. That, that's the kind of man, that's the kind of faith, that's the kind of devotion that Zechariah has for the Lord. And so he's offering incense and the, and the incense that they would offer was uh, 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 something that would represent, as it went up into the air, it would represent the prayers of the people of God going up to heaven. It, it represented their prayers and God hearing their prayers. So, so catch this, remember, Zachariah and his wife Elizabeth have pleaded with the Lord, they've prayed to the Lord their whole lives for a child. And he's, throughout his life, regularly offering the sacrifice of incense to God that represented the prayers of the people of God going up to heaven. And surely, right, he's got to be thinking, God, are you not hearing my prayer? Where are you? The, the incense is going, he's the one making the offering and, and he's watching it and he's seeing it. God, are you not hearing my prayer? And then to make matters worse, watch this. When a priest would offer the incense, they would then go outside to the people, it says, who were praying. If you, you caught that in the, in the verses here, they're outside praying. And, and so they would offer the incense that represented the prayers of the people going up to God. And following the burning of the incense, the priest would go out and stand on the steps of the porch and bless the people using the words of Numbers 6, 24 to 26 as a benediction that went like this. May the Lord bless you and protect you. May the Lord smile on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord show you his favor and give you his peace. That's the benediction that Zechariah was praying over the people. May the Lord give you favor and be gracious to you and bless you. Are you feeling the tension here yet? Zechariah offering the incense to the Lord, proclaiming this blessing over the people all the while, not getting to experience anything that he's doing and anything that he's talking about and anything that he's praying. Confessing these words, these promises of God for his people, yet his experience in his life is confronting that faith that God wants to bless that the Lord's favor is upon us. I mean, Zachariah's gotta be thinking, Lord, why not me? I'm, 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 I've been faithful to you. Why not me? Why not us? Why not answer our prayer? Lord, you, surely you gotta understand his position. He's gotta be thinking, Lord, what's going on here? Why not, why not us? Verse 11, while Zechariah was in the sanctuary, an angel of the Lord appeared to him. Standing to the right of the incense altar, Zechariah was shaken and overwhelmed with fear when he saw him. But the angel said, don't be afraid, Zechariah. God has heard your prayer. Your wife, Elizabeth, will give you a son and you are to name him John. You will have great joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great in the eyes of the Lord. He must never touch wine or any other alcoholic drinks. This is the Nazarite vow, much like Samuel and Saul of the Old Testament before him, John, John the Baptist 
will be a Nazarite from birth. He will take on this Nazarite vow. It was a voluntary vow that some in the nation of Israel would choose to enter into for a season, maybe as a worship to God, as a sacrifice to God, because God had blessed them in some way. But, but here, much like Samuel, much like Samson, John the Baptist is going to be a Nazarite. He's gonna have to take on and live out this Nazarite vow from birth where he won't touch wine or any other alcoholic drinks. There was many other regulations in the Nazarite vow. It says this, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before his birth. So how does God view life in the womb? The same way he views it outside the womb. There is no difference to God. God has plans and purposes for babies inside a womb that hadn't even been born yet. God says he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before his birth. Verse 16, and he will turn many Israelites to the Lord their God. He will be a man with the spirit and power of the prophet Elijah. He will prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. That is the Messiah, the anointed one. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and he will cause those who are rebellious to accept the wisdom of the godly. Zacharias said to the angel, how can I be sure that this is going to happen? I'm an old man now and my wife is also well along in years. Verse 19, then the angel said, I'm Gabriel. Like, you know who you're talking to? I'm Gabriel. I stand in the very presence of God. It was he who sent me to bring you this good news. But now, since you didn't believe what I said, you will be silent and unable to speak until the child is born. For my words will certainly be fulfilled at the proper time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah to come out of the sanctuary, wondering why he was taking so long. When he finally did come out, he couldn't speak to them. Then he, they realized from his gestures and his silence that he must have seen a vision in the sanctuary. Zechariah sees an angel of the Lord and he's terrified, as he should be. When you encounter the, the presence and the holiness and the power of God, there's only one response, it's to be terrified because you're encountering a holy being and you aren't holy. I'm not holy. It's like we sang a second ago, we fall down. Why? Because when you're in the presence of a holy and righteous, eternally holy and righteous God, there is no other response to, to fall down on your knees. Just like Isaiah did in Isaiah chapter six, when he encountered the presence of God, he fell down and said, Lord, I am unclean. I don't deserve to be in your presence. Zacharias sees this angel of God representing the, the presence and word of God and he falls down, he's terrified. And the angel says, God has heard your prayer. God has heard your prayers and you will have a son and you're gonna name him John. And we're not going to go into great detail because we're going to get back into John the Baptist here pretty soon. But a few things to note about this son, whose name is John, who would become John 
the Baptist. John the Baptist would serve as this bridge between the old covenant and the new covenant. He's going to serve in this Nazarite vow. And so he's going to live a life marked with purity and holiness. Yet at the same time, he's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from birth. So he's kind of this bridge between the old covenant, the outward purity and the outward holiness and the new covenant, the changing of someone's heart and the passion and desire for holiness that comes from within, from the Holy Spirit. So, so John serves as this kind of bridge between the old covenant and the new covenant, the outward purity and holiness and the inward purity and holiness of the Holy Spirit that, that fills us and indwells us and gives us a passion for holiness and for righteousness. It's said of John that he would turn the hearts of their fathers back to their children. This is referring to Deuteronomy chapter six, where God told the nation of Israel that parents, fathers in particularly, you will raise your kids to honor, fear, worship, and serve the Lord. And by this day, much like the priests of God had abandoned their role and their post as watchdogs of the truth of God and had traded it in for their political and nationalistic zeal, much like them, the fathers, the Jewish fathers in this day have abandoned their role as the godly leader in their families, leading their wives and their kids to worship, follow, honor, and serve God. And so the angel is saying, John's going to come and he's going to, he's going to preach to some dads and he's going to say, you've abandoned your post. You've gotten more concerned with work, money, leisure activities. And it's time to return to the Lord. It's time to repent of that sin and return to the Lord and realize and understand that your primary role, your primary calling as a husband and as a, is as a father is to lead your family to follow, worship, and serve the Lord. That's your primary role. And so the angel says, John's gonna turn the hearts of their fathers back to their kids and to their wives, their, that their priorities are gonna shift away from where they've been headed and from where they've been looking back to where they should be and that's in the home. That that's your primary job. That's your first job is to your family, is to your wife, is to your kids. So John's gonna turn the hearts of the fathers back to their homes, back to their kids. He's gonna help get their hearts right. And then finally, it says that John, John the Baptist is going to prepare the way for the Lord. He's going to prepare the way. He's going to herald and prepare the way for the Lord, for the Messiah. And so here's what's interesting about Zechariah and Elizabeth's prayers. The answer to their prayers, this child, isn't just about them. Don't miss this. The answer to Zachariah's prayers, the answer to Elizabeth's prayers, the answer to their suffering is so much bigger than them. God is doing something so much bigger than just answering their prayers and just blessing them. No, God has been moving and working and setting all of this up. So, so here's what we're seeing here, that, that even the suffering of Zachariah and Elizabeth is being used for the sake of their entire nation and for the sake of the glory of God. There is something so much bigger going on here. This child that they're going to have, the answer to their prayers is going to prepare the way for the Lord. It's so much bigger than them. They're suffering. 
The answer to the prayers is really all about what God is going to do for his people Israel, through his people Israel, drawing the nations to himself. It's about preparing the way for his Messiah, the Lord, the anointed one to come. Joseph, in Genesis chapter 50, after everything that had happened to him, after being sold into slavery, after being wrongly accused and wrongly imprisoned, Joseph in Genesis chapter 50 said this, what the devil meant for evil, the Lord meant for good. But you gotta keep reading because that's not the end of the statement. The end of the statement is what the devil meant for evil, the Lord meant for good. The saving of many lives. That's what God was up to. Even in the, the suffering of Joseph, Joseph understood and he realized after the fact, God was up to something so much bigger and it really, it was so much bigger than me and my suffering and my prayers being answered. It was so much bigger than me. God was up to something. It was the saving of many lives. And listen, that's exactly what's happening right here in Zechariah and Elizabeth. God is up to something and it's so much bigger than them. It's really about the story of God. It's really about God's rescue mission to redeem a lost people who are headed to hell. And that's what God is always doing. It's always bigger than you. Your suffering, your lack, your loss, your answered prayer, it's always so much bigger than you. Zachariah to the angel, he's like, what? Like now? Like, you're, we're, we're like 90, we're like 100. When this kid graduates, we're gonna be like 118. You're, you're making us raise a teenager in our old year, like in, we're almost dead and we're gonna have to raise a teenager. Like, what, God, what are you doing? Like, do you not understand this is the wrong timing? This is the, this is the wrong time. Yet the angel said, this was the proper time. You see, God's time is always the proper time. God is always on time. God's time is always the proper time. We've all had those reasons before, right? Where we thought the, the promises of God maybe weren't for us because of our past, because of our situation. Great joy and gladness. That's what the angel told Zechariah. Great joy and gladness. Zechariah had to be thinking, yeah, right. What are, what, are, what are you talking about? Great joy and gladness. We're at the end of our lives and so while Zechariah has served God faithfully, in this moment, there's some, there's some bitterness that comes out about the timing of God. There, there's some bitterness that comes out here. He, he says, how can I know that this is going to happen? What, what we learn from the context and from the way the angel responds is that what Zechariah is really saying here is prove it. Give me a sign. Prove it. Now, when we read through the Gospel of Luke, we're going to see a couple of different times, especially here in the first few chapters, where God, by his sovereign will, gives a sign. But we're also going to see, as we study the Gospel of Luke, several different times where the Pharisees ask Jesus for a sign to prove that he is who he says he is, and that never goes well. Okay, it never goes well. It's never viewed as a positive thing. It's always viewed as a negative thing when people demand a sign from God to prove who he is. And that's what's happening here. And we know that by the angel's response. The angel to 
Zechariah is like, I'm Gabriel. Like, you know who you're talking to? He says, I stand in the presence of God. Who, like, who are you? Who are you to demand a sign from me or from the Lord? I stand in the presence of God. He said, and he sent me here with this good news for you, but you need more proof. And so guess what? You're going to time out, right? Parents, you ever have a kid talk to you in a certain way? You're like, nuh-uh, nuh-uh. You know who you're talking to, right? And so you send them to timeout. Well, the angel sends Zachariah to timeout. And so he, he can't hear, he can't speak. We, we learn this from some of what's said and from some of the context here. He can't learn, he can't speak. He's over in the corner doing gestures, doing sign language, you know, or whatever, trying to get, trying to get people charades or something, trying to get people to understand what he's talking about. So, so, so the angel th- from God disciplines Zechariah for his lack of faith. Because in this moment, his bitterness comes out. You see, sometimes God disciplines us for our good because he loves us. God disciplines his kids because he loves them. And so maybe, maybe the worst of the wrath of God is just him leaving you alone. Because God disciplines his kids because he loves them to bring them to the end of themselves so that they will delight in nothing but him because it's only him where you will find peace and satisfaction and fulfillment and purpose. Then God's discipline is a good thing. It's a demonstration of his love in our lives. Verse 23, when Zachariah's week of service in the temple was over, he returned home. Soon afterward, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and went into seclusion for five months. How kind the Lord is, she exclaimed. He has taken away my disgrace of having no children. Do you see Elizabeth's response? The Lord is kind. The Lord is gracious. He's been merciful to me. I didn't deserve this. God doesn't owe me anything. Yet he has blessed me with this child. The Lord is kind. And I've got to think that Zachariah is over in the corner doing charades going, I don't know about that. Like, I don't, I don't know if the Lord's very kind, right? Right. But Elizabeth says, the Lord has been kind. He's been gracious to me. I didn't deserve any of this, but the Lord has been kind to me. You see, in this first story of overwhelming pain and suffering because of loss, because of lack, their entire lives, we see two different responses to the absurd promises of God. And now we're gonna read a second story with another faithful, like Elizabeth, response to the absurd promises of God. Let's keep going. Verse 26, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel to Gabriel to Nazareth, the angel Gabriel to Nazareth in a village in Galilee. So Nazareth is a village in the region of Galilee to a virgin named Mary. She was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. Let's stop there. Nazareth in Galilee is a dark, unspiritual, irreligious Place. In fact, there was an idiom in Zechariah's day that went like this. What good can come from Nazareth? What good could come from Nazareth? It's a very dark and unspiritual place. Yet, here's what's interesting. The prophets would say 
that the Messiah would be despised and that the nation should look to Galilee where a light would shine in the darkness. To Galilee where the light will shine from the darkness. The prophets said that the Messiah would come from this region. The prophets said that the Messiah would be called a Nazarene. So, so how did the, the, the priest and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of Zechariah, how did they miss this? How, how did they miss their Messiah? I remind you that the priest in Zechariah's day replaced the truth of God's word with some sort of combined national political ambition. So they missed the messianic prophecies of a suffering servant that would be born of a virgin in Bethlehem because it didn't fit in with their narrative. It didn't fit in with their desire, with their zeal for political power, for political ambition. It didn't fit their narrative. And so they totally missed it. They totally missed their, their, their own Messiah because of their preoccupation with politics and national zeal. They totally missed him. Verse 28, Gabriel appeared to her to Mary and said, greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. Confused and disturbed, Mary tried to think what the angel could mean. Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her. You have found favor with God. This word favor, the angel uses it twice. Greetings, favored woman. You have found favor with God. This is the same word we get grace from. Favor, grace. It's an unmerited status or position before God. So here's what's interesting. This angel is saying to Mary, you have an undeserved, unearned status or position before God. So question, was Mary a sinner in need of salvation, in need of grace from God, just like any one of us? Answer, yes. In fact, in a few verses, in a couple of weeks, we're gonna see that when Mary cries out in song and prays to God for God answering her prayer, she says this, I praise God my savior. Mary needed to be saved. So we don't worship Mary, we don't pray to Mary. Mary doesn't help us in our salvation before God. No, she needed a savior. And right here, it's clear, the angel says that Mary has received an unearned status or position before God. That's grace. Mary needed grace just like you and I. She needed an unearned righteousness that she could not earn for herself, just like you and I. So she's favored. She's got an undeserved status or standing just like you and I have if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 31, you will conceive and give birth to a son and you will name him Jesus, which means the Lord saves. 
He will be very great and he will be called the son of the most high. That's the son of God. The Lord God will give him his throne of his ancestor, David, and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. Two things you need to know about Jesus. Number one, the angel says he will be the son of God. He will be the son of God. He will be, you'll see here in a couple of verses, born of the Holy Spirit, that it was the Holy Spirit that conceived this child inside of Mary. And this is important because for Jesus to be holy and without sin, to be your perfect, spotless lamb sacrifice that could die in your place for your sin, for that to even be possible, then this man, Jesus, would have to not be born of a man so that he would not inherit Adam's sin nature that every single one of us inherit when we are born. Every last one of us, when we're born, we are born into sin, the scripture says. We inherit the sin nature that has been passed down throughout the generations. And so that's why we have to teach children to do right. We don't have to teach them to do wrong. They figure that out on their own, right? Mine, 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 right? And then when you don't get mine, there's crying and weeping and gnashing of teeth, right? We have to teach our kids to do right. We're born into sin. And so sometimes people will say, well, what's the big deal? What, what, if, what if Mary wasn't you know, what if Jesus wasn't conceived of the Holy Spirit? What if, what if Mary wasn't really a virgin and, and, and Jesus was just born of Joseph and, and, and Mary? Well, that's a big problem. You lose Jesus, right? And, and you lose salvation. You lose the entire gospel because then Jesus would be born of a man and a woman and would have a sin nature just like you and I and could not be your perfect spotless lamb sacrifice that would die in your place for your sin. There would be no righteousness to give you so that you could have a righteous standing before God. So it's a big deal. Jesus was the son of God. Now some, especially some other cults in our country have said, well, look right there. It says he's the son. He's not God. He's the son of God. But what you have to understand about the scripture and about the Jewish interpretation of the firstborn son is that they saw Jesus claiming to be the son of God as making himself equal with God. That's why at one point they'll try to kill him and they'll say he was saying and claiming that he was the son of God making himself equal with God. Because to be the firstborn son in this case, the scripture is the only begotten son of the father. That means that you are of the same status, worth, and value, and nature as your father. That's what it meant to a Jew. And, and so that's why when we call Jesus the son of God, it's just like saying, it's exactly like saying he is God. That's the way any Jew would have interpreted that statement. So, so Jesus is the son of God. He's God. He's of the same nature and equal in, in, in equal in value and worth and nature as God. Secondly, Jesus is a son of David. He's the son of David. And that's important because God had made a promise to David in second, second, uh, second Samuel that you will never cease to have someone reigning on your throne. He made that promise to David. Then before David, David is in the line of Abraham. God had promised Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 that through your seed, all the nations on earth will be blessed. Abraham is in the seed of Eve. In Genesis chapter three, what did God tell Eve? What did God promise Eve? That your seed will crush the head of Satan, of the serpent. So, so, so watch this. In Jesus, 
we have the fulfillment of almost every covenant that God made with his people. It's like a neon sign in the scripture saying, eh, eh, eh. it's him, it's him, it's him. This is him. This is the Messiah. This is the son of God. All of the scripture, Jesus said, was pointing to him. Jesus said all the prophets, the law, the prophets and the Psalms, it was all about him. It was all about him. So in Jesus being the, the son of David, who will rule since he lives now, he lives forever reigning on his throne. God has fulfilled his word to David, to Abraham, to Eve, and to all of his people. Now here's what's interesting. C.S. Lewis, starting out as an atheist, said this, that there's no way a people could know their God because there's no way a creature or creation could ever know and understand their creator. That he said that would be impossible. He said it would be like Hamlet knowing Shakespeare, his writer, his author, his creator, who lives and exists outside of the story, right? So, so C.S. Lewis said, there's no way Hamlet could ever know Shakespeare. But when he began to realize that Jesus, and when he was convinced of the evidence, like we talked about last week, that Jesus had risen from the grave, here's what he said. This is so cool. He said, Hamlet could never know Shakespeare unless, watch this, Shakespeare wrote himself into the play. If Shakespeare wrote himself into the play, then Hamlet could know Shakespeare and be in relationship with his author, with his creator, Shakespeare. And in Jesus, that's exactly what God has done. He's written himself into the play so that you and I can know him and have a relationship with him. He's the son of God. He's the son of man. He's God in a bod. God wrote himself into the play so that we might know him. Verse 34, Mary asked the angel, but how can this happen? I'm a virgin. And the angel replied, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the most high will overshadow you. So the baby to be born will be holy. There it is. He's gonna be born of the Holy Spirit. So this baby will be holy and he will be called the son of God. What's more, your relative Elizabeth has become pregnant in her old age. People used to say that she was barren, but she has conceived a son and is now in her sixth month. For the word of the Lord will never fail. And Mary responded, I am the Lord's servant. May everything you have said about me come true. And then the angel left her. Verse 34, Mary says, how will this be since I'm a virgin? Like, this is impossible. So how are you going to do it? It's impossible, but all things are possible through God. So how are you gonna do it? And the angel tells her, the Holy Spirit's gonna overshadow you and you are going to conceive a son and he will be a son, the son of God. Her response to the absurd promises, the impossible promises of God is so much different than Zachariah's. And we know that from the context. Zachariah's response was prove it, give me a sign. Mary's response is, God, whatever you're doing, whether I understand it or not, may it be to me as you have said, I am your servant. She responds with humility, knowing what's coming her way, knowing that she has an impossible conversation with Joseph ahead of her. Honey, 
I'm pregnant. It's not yours, but I promise it's not anyone else's either. I mean, can you imagine that conversation? She knows what's ahead. She knows what's ahead. She, she knows that all of society around her is going to want to stone her for her adultery. She knows what's ahead. She knows what's just been dropped in her lap. The overwhelming burden, the overwhelming anxiety of what has just been dropped in her lap, that she is going to be the mother, that she is going to raise the son of God. Can you imagine the anxiety that would come with that job, with that role? She, she knows what's ahead. And here's what she says, may it be to me as you have said, whatever it is, whatever you've got for me, whatever it looks like, whether I understand it or not, may it be to me as you have said, I am the Lord's servant. She unreservedly embraces the purposes of God for her life and her role in God's purposes without regard to its cost to her personally. That's faith. That's a, a defiant faith when everything in your life is challenging your certain faith in God. That is a certain faith. Two takeaways from these stories about the promises of God and our response to the absurd promises of God. Two takeaways about when the uncertainty of life is challenging your certainty in God. Number one, the promise keeper is always faithful to promise breakers. The promise keeper is always faithful to promise breakers. The angel said to Zechariah, these words will be fulfilled at the proper time. It's going to happen. The proper time is the divine time. The proper time is God's time. It's going to happen as the Lord chooses and when he chooses to do it. These promises are fulfilled thousands of years later for some of the people that we read about in the Old Testament. Not in their lifetime. God fulfills his promises and he makes good on his covenant with his chosen nation, Israel, in spite of their continued lack of faith, in spite of their continued rejection of him, in spite of their continued disobedience. God continues to remain faithful to his people. Because as the angel said to Mary, the word of the Lord will never fail. See, God is faithful even when we're faithless. And I don't know about you, but that's great news. Because I know how unfaithful I am. I know how faithless I can be. And so I'm thankful that the Lord is faithful. Even when we're unfaithful, I'm thankful that the Lord keeps his promises even when I break my promises. Second takeaway is this, these promises that we're reading about are about a heavenly person, not an earthly position. And you've got to get that. You've got to catch this. The promises and then the promises in scripture, especially in the new covenant for you and I as the body of Christ are for a heavenly person. It's all about a heavenly person. It's not about an earthly position. In fact, Jesus promised us the opposite, that in this life, you will have many troubles. So, so the promises of God for, for you and I as Christians are not about any kind of earthly position, power, or possession. It's all about a heavenly person. Both of these promises to both of these couples 
or about the coming of the Lord. Luke says that this is God's story. That's what Luke is saying. This is God's story. And whether it's the suffering of one couple or the overwhelming anxiety and trouble for another couple, it's God's story. It's bigger than you. It was bigger than them. This is about a heavenly person. Luke is making it clear that the real needs here are not of those of Mary or even of Zachariah and Elizabeth. It was bigger than just them. This is about the saving of many lives. God is intervening in human history on a rescue mission. You see the problem in our day, in our country, is that we kind of have interwoven Christianity with the American dream. And so our expectation, even as Christians, is power, it's wealth, it's possessions. And when we don't get those things, we whine and pout. Or when we don't get those things when we want them, we whine and we pout. Why? Because we don't know the scripture. We think we're guaranteed some sort of earthly position or possession or power, and we're not. That's not what the promises are about. The promises are about a heavenly person. And so most of the time, our, our response to the absurd promises of God are a lack of faith because we don't know or understand the scripture or we don't believe it. And so when things don't go our way, we run, we run from God. But what these stories are telling us is that the ultimate purposes of God, the ultimate story is about you knowing and glorifying Him, God, through a relationship with Jesus. It's all about a heavenly person, not an earthly position. I read an article this week by John Piper and in it, he talks about the love of God and how most of us think, kind of like children, that if God loves us, then He'll give us, give us what we want. He'll give us that, that car, that relationship, that money, that item, wh whatever it is. But here's what he wrote in his article. He said this, God's love is his doing whatever needs to be done at whatever cost so that we will see and be satisfied with the glory of God in Jesus Christ. That's what God is always doing. That's what he's always doing. And that's what he's doing in your life right now. He is working and moving in your life, whatever needs to be done at whatever cost, so that you will see and be satisfied with the glory of God in Jesus Christ. He wrote this, until Christ becomes our treasure, we don't, want it, we don't know what it is to be loved by God. And so what if, what if, the things that are happening in your life aren't because God is angry with you. What if they're happening because God is merciful and he's drawing you to himself so that you will know the joy, the freedom, and the love that's found in Jesus in that heavenly person. And then, then maybe you will believe what the angel said to Zechariah. You will have great joy and gladness. And then maybe you could say like Elizabeth, the Lord is kind and faithful. I don't deserve anything. Lord, you've been so kind and so faithful to me. Maybe like, maybe like Mary, then you'll say, I'm the Lord's servant. 
May it be to me as you have said. Because you found the heavenly person and you're fully satisfied in him. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you for your word. God, I thank you for how it challenges us, it comforts us, it changes us. And God, I pray that you would do all those things right now through the power of the Holy Spirit. You would challenge us, you would comfort us, you would change us. You would cause a faith to rise up inside of us, a certain faith that rises up inside of us that says no matter what the cost, whatever's going on, God, I trust you that you are moving, you are working, and your story is ultimately about your glory and our good. And so we trust you. We trust you. May it be to me as you have said. In Jesus' name.